They want me to change, they want me to change, but I ain't changing. Nah. I remain the same. And you are now tuned in to another episode of Intellectually Petty Radio. Brought to you by M3S3 Clothing. Me and Make Moves and Sucker Stand Still. And as always on the Mighty Mighty Nerve DJ's Radio Network. Um, you know, man, I, I only have legends. I'm sorry, what can I say? Today is absolutely no exception, man. We have the pinnacle, the apex of anti-racism in America. Um, he's written a gazillion books. He has spoken at whatever college you can possibly think of. He has been on CNN. He is your mother's favorite person on anti-racism, Mr. Tim Wise himself. How you doing, sir? I'm doing all right. I don't know about all that, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> on a day like today, I'll take it. Some days I don't need that, but today I'll take that. Yeah, well, you know what? I'm I'm glad. You know, I'm glad I can be of assistance, man. Um, let's start off with why. Why do you why do you do what you do? Um, you know, there's a long story behind it. The short version is um, that I was raised right, and what I mean by that is I was raised by parents, particularly a mother who. Um, you know, came up in the she came up in the 60s. She was not old enough to have been actively involved in the movement the way some were, but she was old enough to know that she wanted to raise her her child with a certain sensibility. And, and you know, I was raised in the American South. Um, I think that actually has a lot to do with how I ended up how I am, because I think those of us who were raised in the South in the in the 70s, let's say, in the in the quote unquote post-civil rights era, mm-hmm. uh, we had an inherent understanding of how race was the background noise of everything. Like, I think if you grew up white in the Northwest, even if you were liberal or progressive, whatever that means, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you grew up in New York, you grew up in LA, you grew up in Des Moines, you grew up anywhere but the South, you could be white and really liberal for what that's worth, but you might not even think about race because race has not been imprinted on your history. It's not, it's not the background noise of every, or it is the background noise, but you don't realize it is. Exactly. In the South, we all know it's the background noise. So for me, I had a parent that, that wanted me to have certain experiences. I went to, to preschool uh, at the age of three and four at a historically black college, early childhood ed program. I was at Tennessee State University in Nashville. And I was in a, in a in an environment where I was not the norm mm-hmm. and where my my peers were mostly black kids. Um, the women who ran the program were black women. So I'm learning to be subordinated to black authority at the age of four, which, you know, most white folks have never been subordinated to black authority by the time they're 54, let alone. Exactly. 50, right. And yeah. so I just had a series of experiences, thank God, that that I think really um shaped my ability to perhaps be open to some stuff when other people pointed me in that direction. Mm-hmm. When I had mentors that said, hey, look at this. Like I was able to look at it in a way because of those experiences that that allowed me to see some things about the way American society works around race in particular that made me want to um, go in a different direction than what white America has been encouraged to do, which is to collaborate with that inequality to to facilitate that inequality to take advantage of that inequality rather than to try to mitigate that. Okay. Um, so at 11, you, you witnessed like, if I remember correctly for the first time, overt racism. Um, I'd seen it before that, but, mm -hmm. but when I was 11, uh, if if it's the incident that you're thinking of, it's the one I'm thinking of when you say it, I, I played ball, I played basketball and baseball. Exactly on teams that were mostly black kids. I was one of three kids on the basketball team that I played on, one of four four white kids on the baseball team that I played on. Everybody else was black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1980, um, when I was 11 that summer, we went out to play a scrimmage game about 25, 30 minutes outside of Nashville. And the team that we were supposed to play against wouldn't even step on the field with us. Wow. And 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 it was clearly because I mean, first off, it's funny. We only showed up with eight guys and we were like, look, we're willing to to like put the outfielders in left center and right center. We just want to play. You know, we we, we know you all probably going to beat us. We don't even have a full team like they should have taken full advantage. We weren't even that good. Like they should have taken advantage. They would killed us, but they just didn't even want to step on the field with us because it was a black team. And it was obvious that was why, because at some point as we're getting ready to leave, they surround the car. I'm talking about the players now. Mm-hmm. On the other team surround the car. 
and they're threatening us. They have baseball bats, like, you know, held back, like they're going to hit us with them, like they're going to bash the car with them, calling the black kids the N-word, calling the white kids N-word lovers. Um, and I just remember that was the moment where um, it wasn't the first time that I'd seen racism, but it was the first time that I had seen racism deployed in a way that said to me as a white person, mm-hmm. you have chosen the wrong side here, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like they weren't just speaking to those black kids. They clearly didn't like them, but they had a special hatred for the four of us who were white because it was like, how dare y'all be on that team? How dare you all Yeah. Like how, y- how, how dare y'all be with those kids when y'all need to be with us? It goes without saying they didn't like the black children. But the fact that there were white children who would actually hang out with black children, that to them was almost worse in a weird way. I, I, I kind of get it. I understand where they're coming from. And for that part, my, my, my um, when I saw the story, what I really wanted to know was what was the conversation with your teammates like on the way home? What's deep about it is, is that there was no conversation on the way home. That's what's so deep about it. Because in retrospect, I remember I talked with one or two teammates about it individually afterward, mm-hmm. but only on a real surface level. It was almost like and even our coach and, 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 and I give our coach a lot of credit for a lot of things. He was an important male figure in my life during those years because I didn't have a really great relationship with my own father. And so he was a really important male figure for me. But he didn't even know how to handle that. Like he didn't even know, like, y'all, you know, we needed to go as a team and sit and process that. And I yeah. think that now if that were to happen, anything even remotely like that, I feel like most coaches would know, like, man, we got to talk about this. But at that time, he didn't know what to do. None of us knew what to do. We were just all in shock. We, we were bonded over it. Mm-hmm. And I think we remain it made us closer, but we didn't talk about why. Like, OK, yeah, we're closer now because of some really awful shit that just happened. Like like we should have been talking about the context of that. And, and, and it made me think years later when I reflected on it, there were so many things that were happening around that same time. So this is 1980. I would have been in sixth grade, mm-hmm. all seventh and eighth grade. There were a number of racist type incidents that we just didn't have a context for for processing because the schools, just like the team, the school didn't really carve out time to talk about the stuff that was happening to people. And so here I had all these friends who I'd grown up with. And I know like white folks will say they have black friends and usually we're lying to be honest, but like early on, I didn't have anything but black friends. Like that was my, from Tennessee state, from preschool up, like mm-hmm. that, my, that was my peer group. But the fact that we didn't actually carve out time to talk about the real stuff that was happening speaks to the era and the time period that we were in, but also just the the the, the ignorance and naivete of authority figures, like not even knowing, like, how do we how do we process this thing? I don't know. Let's just move on. Even when I was in high school, we had a uh, when I was in high school in the in the late mid 80s, we had my senior year, a race riot at our high school. Now, what was interesting is that it wasn't white against black. It was white and black on one side against Southeast Asian kids, mostly Thai, Vietnamese, Lao, Hmong, Cambodian, who had come to Nashville um, as as post-1975 refugees leaving Southeast Asia. And there was a lot of cultural misunderstanding, a lot of contempt and and anger and hostility toward these young people. Mm -hmm. And instead of the school getting us together to be like, hey, let's talk about some stuff. Let's work. Let's figure out why it is we have these feelings about this group and why we don't understand this group. They just kept the. Southeast Asian kids on one side of the school away from the rest of us. And that just fed the suspicion. Right. And fed the like, oh, y'all are outsiders. Y'all don't really belong here. Right. Instead of like dealing with it when the riot touched off, which was about some silly stuff like they're playing soccer on the front lawn. And in the 80s, you know, nobody in America played soccer, basically, like in 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 the mid 80s, that wasn't even a thing. Right. But so you had these white and black kids out trying to play soccer and these Vietnamese kids were just killing them because they've been playing soccer since they were children, because that's right. In the rest of the world, that's what they play. So they're getting jealous about the fact they're getting beaten by these kids. And then a fight touches off and it becomes this big deal. And instead of getting us all together and being like, what the hell is wrong with y'all? They were like, you know, uh, could the Asian students come to the auditorium? We need to meet with you. And then they were like, could all the non-Asian students come to the auditorium? It's like, what is that? You know, so I just think a lot they of made it worse. don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. And, and I saw that, you know, firsthand growing up, like people just 
not understanding how to navigate this difficult space. Okay, so just outside looking in, just an old black guy. Um, love what you do. Um, I have one one complaint. Sure. The black and brown bothers me immensely. Like I, I watched you, I think it was at Wichita State, and you were. Uh, it was uh, Black History Day, and you just black and brown, black and brown, black, and it bothers me because it it minimizes our struggle and adopts another community into a struggle that they didn't have to endure. Who, fair enough, also by and large don't like black people. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. You know, there's definitely look anti-blackness. And let me be very clear on that, is the core of American racism. Zero question. Anti-blackness, and one could argue anti-indigeneity toward indigenous people, are the are the core of white supremacy historically. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as Malcolm X said, you know, the first thing that immigrants learn when they come to the U.S. is the N-word, right? And, and he said it somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek, but, but it wasn't meant as a joke. Like, like he was... He was being perhaps exaggerating a little bit, being hyperbolic a little bit, but he wasn't he wasn't off by much. Right. Like when you no. come here, that is. And, and right now we see we clearly see the limitations at present of the potential black brown coalitions that could form theoretically, mm-hmm. but are clearly not forming in large part because of anti-blackness. So your point is very well taken, like like the the, the idea that Latino folks or Asian folk will automatically identify with the struggle of black folk is clearly naive, clearly wrong. And in fact, we see in the current era, in the last four or five years, we've seen a tremendous upsurge in right wing Latino folk in particular. Actually, interestingly, Asian folk have been moving more progressive politically and around issues of race and Latino folk have been moving more conservative. And I mean, I have all kinds of theories about why that is that we don't probably have time to get into, but, but the point being, yes, to be anything other than black in America, but also to be something other than white in America creates a mentality in you from what I can tell Mm -hmm. that sort of the same mentality the Irish had when they came to the U S right. When the Irish came, they were being told by, their religious leaders in Ireland. Y'all need to come and join the abolition struggle because you have been the slaves of the English. That was literally what they were being told. But when the Irish came here, they looked around, they were like, are you kidding? Like if we, if we throw down with the black folks, we're going to be treated like the black folks. We're going to, we're going to actually identify with the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who have oppressed us for years. We will identify with them before we identify with black people. And so who led the, 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 riots, the draft riots in New York in, in the 1860s. Well, that was the Irish and the German immigrants who burned down a a, 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 a black orphanage on 41st or 42nd Avenue um, in opposition to being drafted into the Civil War. I feel like to some extent, Latino folk and Asian folk are being given that same deal right now that the Irish and the German yes. and the Jewish immigrant was being yes. given is y'all can get with them or y'all can get with us. Right. And, yes. and so and, 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 and I don't blame I, I don't just like I don't blame the Irish for the deal they cut. I get it. I get it. I judge it and I want to hold accountable, but I get it. I also want to hold enough space out to say, look, there is a different path for brown folk. Let's say if we're using that terminology. I know that a lot of them aren't choosing that alternate path right now, but I don't want to give up on that because the reality is I can do the math. I wasn't great at math in school, but I'm good Mm -hmm. enough at math to know that the idea that black folk alone as 12 and a half percent of the population can liberate the country from white supremacy and in white supremacy, incredibly unlikely. So from a math perspective, it's important to try to cleave off enough of those brown folk and enough white folk for that matter to actually statistically make a difference to change the country. But I totally agree that the, that the current construct of black and brown is, is more hopeful than real in terms of how it actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think from a statistic standpoint that, that the brown folks have, have realized give it another 60, 70 years, we'll have a president Jose and there will never be another president Thomas. And, and 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 I think that that realization fuels a lot of what's going on. Like Trump tapped into that energy with white people. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this: integration. 
Good or bad thing? Um, a decidedly mixed bag, you know? Like, look, I, I, I came up in Nashville in the 70s. I was a child of integrated schooling. Mm-hmm. And I think that in my particular instance, most of the people, white and black, who came through that, in my particular school zone, would tell you that it was a positive experience. But there'd be people in other parts of Nashville where I grew up who might feel differently because in my particular school zone, integration wasn't real difficult. We had neighborhoods that were relatively close together. So you didn't have to bust somebody 50 minutes. You didn't have to send some people into a place where they didn't normally exist anyway. Like it was easier in my space. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, I don't want to, I don't want to overclaim it based on my experience because I okay. realized that other people had different burdens to bear. But I want to say this, I think in general, Two things can be true at once. One is that segregation was inherently unjust, inherently unjust, like legally, morally, ethically, it was unjust. At the same time, if you if you do integration without preparation, if you do integration without a recognition of the power dynamics that still exist between community A and community B, that integration is going to be far less effective or positive than you wanted it to be. So, for example, I live in Nashville. Um, In Nashville, integration meant not just the the blending of students across district lines or across Mm -hmm. across community lines, but it meant the, the, the termination of black teachers jobs. It meant that a lot of black counselors, guidance counselors, principals, administrators lost their jobs because what they did is they took all the black kids, put them in the white schools, kept the white teachers and the handful of black teachers they felt they could keep. And they closed a lot of the best schools and some of the best schools in this city. I mean, Pearl High School, as just an example, this will mean nothing to anyone that doesn't know the history of Nashville, but I'm sure there are similar histories elsewhere. Mm-hmm. In Nashville, Pearl High School, which was the historically black North Nashville High School, north of Jefferson Street, or right, right off Jefferson Street, was a, a, a crown jewel of black education in the South. And when integration came, of course, what it meant was white folks didn't want to send their kids to Pearl, didn't want to send their kids to Washington, which was the junior high school at the time, Mm -hmm. even though even though my mom wanted to. My mom was wanting me to go to Washington. She was excited for the thought that I might go to Washington because she's like, those are the best teachers in the city. And then they closed Washington. Was she ever scared for herself and your safety? No, she wanted me to go there because she knew those were the best teachers in the city. But when they closed it, Mm-hmm. which is what they did because they, you know, not enough white parents wanted their children to go over there. So she was upset. I ended up going to a junior high school in the middle of a very white community. Turned out the school was 45% black because of busing. But my mom wanted me to go to North Nashville. Mm-hmm. My grandfather grew up on Jefferson Street in the black community like that. That's where they wanted me to go. But for most white folks, yeah, they didn't want that. So as a result, right, it was, oh, let's just close all those schools. So integration ended up being... I think a mixed bag. Are there benefits to getting away from separate but equal when it clearly wasn't equal? Well, of course. But the problem is if you take the bodies and you mix them, but you don't mix the philosophies of schooling. This is what Teresa Perry, brilliant educational theorist, talks about in her work. She talks about, mm-hmm. you know, under segregation for black folks. The, the philosophy of why you go to school had to be different than the white philosophy. Cause for white folks, you go to school so you can get a good job, make a lot of money and run stuff. Like that's why you do it. But if you were black under segregation, you could not have that mentality because you knew you weren't going to run stuff. So you were going to school for liberation. You were going to school, not just for you, but for your whole community. Like, you know, it's all of us or none of us kind of thing. It was, it yeah. was Teresa Perry calls it freedom for literacy and literacy for freedom. Right. You have to be literate to be actually free. And so the problem is we integrated bodies, but we didn't integrate the philosophies. We kept the individualistic, hyper individualistic what's in it for me mentality that white folks had always had in the schools. Mm -hmm. And we just put black bodies in there. We didn't actually take the black mentality about education like, hey, this is about collective uplift. This is about everybody doing better. If we had done that, if we had integrated that philosophy into white schools. We might be in a very different place right now, but all we did was mix the bodies and we kept the white paradigm, you know? So that was the problem. You know, I, and it's, it's, it's interesting. I had a completely warped upbringing, and I don't mean warped in a negative way. Um, I'm from Detroit, and me and you are a couple of years apart in age. Yeah. 
So when I'm growing up, Detroit is 95% black people. Yeah. So on every level of, of life, from rich people to the poorest people, they look like me. So I got a, a, a sense of, of power that a lot of people in the country, a lot of black folks in the country did not inherently get just by growing up. Yeah. But I remember um, I, I interviewed uh, Bishop Talbert Swan and we were talking about our nigga moment. And what I mean by that um, is the first time I was called a nigger by a white person. And I didn't, you know, like, like I knew about race relations and I knew about things that went on in the world, but I had never experienced it until I went to Michigan State. And I'm just randomly riding my bike down the street and some guy calls me a nigger. Wow. I was so angry. And this guy was in his car and he got stopped by this light. I, I, I'm telling you, I end up kicking his door. I was just, I was just, it, it, I have never been that angry since and I had never been that anger, angry before. And I couldn't quite understand that until I became like a, at least 30. Yeah. You know, um, and I don't know if it's fair. Like, let me backtrack a little bit. I, who, who was that? Uh, 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 I saw an interview of you. You were on CNN and I forget uh, one of the Martin Luther King's sons was saying that uh, George Wallace had converted. You know, we worked on him and now he's a changed man. And you were like, well, he got shot to kind of kind of kind of changes things. But uh, uh, what's the other guy that was on the other brother that was on there? And he was like, that's not our responsibility as black people to change white people. Right. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think, look. Black folks, I think, have got enough to deal with in America Mm -hmm. to survive and to thrive um, and to to. You know, create the kind of lives that 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 black folks want to create without worrying about fixing white people. Obviously, if it's anybody's job to fix white people, it would be other white people who see things a little differently, which is what I've always considered my role to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, However ostentatious that may sound like that is it's my job more than yours like you just gotta you gotta you gotta survive and thrive you you know you can't worry about you're not my therapist you're not white folks therapist and you can't be you're not being paid enough to be our therapist right so so the deal is i think that said white people have a lot to learn from black folk but the question is are we are we putting the burden on black folk to teach us? Like, it's one thing to go to a black person and say, oh, tell me about your experiences. I really want to learn because that's a burden. That's a lot of emotional labor for you to have to yeah. respond to that. But if it's a matter like if it, when white folks ask me, well, where can I learn more about racism? Like y'all got the Google machine. Y'all, you know, like how hard is this? Like, like you could do some research. I know you might not have graduate student level research skills. Most people don't. But we all have the Google machine. And we all can look up some stuff. And if we choose to, we can dive deeper than the first two pages of the Google search, too. We can look like 10 pages in. We can read books. We can, you know, like there's no there's no shortage of information out there. So I think even though black folk shouldn't take it upon themselves to teach us, we have enough of your examples and enough of your information that if we're really interested, mm-hmm. we can learn from black folk without having to burden black folk. We don't have to actually ask you to teach us because y'all have already put the shit out there. So like, it's not really that complicated if we really want to learn. So when white folks say, well, what do I need to read? What you're really telling me is you don't want to read anything. Cause if you really wanted to, you'd have looked that up. Like this is y- y'all look up everything. You look up like who's the best house cleaner to choose or like what's the best Airbnb in Des Moines. Like, you know, like white folks will look up anything. Like we'll look yeah. up Yelp reviews on some coffee bars and yoga shops and, 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 and Pilates places. But we're not going to look up information about <laughs> race. I mean, come on, you know. Uh, it, yeah. What, what what happens when you're gone? Who takes your place? Are, are you training somebody? You know, like like as far as I know, it's you and Jane Elliott are 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 so the, the white people <laughs> right. that are 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 trumpeting you know the anti racism banner. So Jane, it was funny a few months back, or maybe a year or so now. I was referenced in an article with Jane and Peggy McIntosh. And we were referred to as the OGs of white anti-racism, which is hilarious, first of all, 
because I don't think that Peggy or Jane know what OG means. I, I'm young enough to know what it means. Um, but but also because also because they're both in their 80s and I'm yeah. 54. So like the fact yeah. that clearly Gen X let everybody down because it didn't create enough uh, that we've got this 30 year gap makes me feel terrible. But the, here's the here's the reality. The the truth is that I think in the last 20 years and I'm not going to take any credit for this. I've done my part, but a lot of others have done their part. I think that there have been more white folks than ever before who have been exposed, whether that is in their college classes or even sometimes high school classes, although that may be changing given all the curricular restrictions that are happening now, who have been exposed to a different way of understanding the world and a different way of thinking about the world. And so I do think there are young people who are coming along who are white who have an anti-racist sensibility that, again, just like mine at 20 and 25 and 30, was not fully formed. Even mine now is not fully formed. I'm yours make- was different, though. You got to you got to you got to realize yours is completely different because it you was. sat at the tree and you it was, it was planted, it, it so, was so to speak. It was very different in the sense that I didn't come to it through college classes. I didn't come through it through you know, research, I, it was literally lived experience. Exactly. So I definitely, I definitely agree. It is different, but I think that they're also, I, I meet a lot of white folks. Um, interestingly, who, when I tell that story or some versions of those stories, or they read my book, white, like me, where I talk about that in my memoir, like there actually are more white folks who've had similar experiences than even I realized. And they all say like, man, you know what? I grew up in a, context where I had some similar things happening and I never thought about it this way. And now I'm starting to think about it. So I do feel like there are some white folks, maybe they didn't go to preschool at HBCU. No, but you know, they played ball or they, or they were in a dance company or they were on a soccer team or they were whatever, like they went, they, they were in a space with folks of color and particularly black folks. And they realized maybe 20 years later, 15 years later, how important that was. Like they didn't even, they didn't even piece it together necessarily why mm. that was so to them. So um, I don't know who's coming next, but I know there will be some. My my thing is, and I've been saying this since 2020, because when the George Floyd killing took place in the aftermath of that, I realized that there were a lot of these white folks in particular who were joining the movement, but they were joining it out of a particular moment, right? They were joining it out of uh, yeah. political anger. And I mean, that's righteous. Whatever brings you to the movement, I'm down for. I'm not I'm not judging you for that. But if you come to the movement because of a crisis moment, it's like, ah, are you really going to stay in it as opposed to do you have personal relationships with black people? Because if you don't have personal relationships with black people, I don't really trust even with your best intentions. I don't trust that you're going to stay in it. Right, because it's that, so that too is like a, a slippery slope too, and I'll tell you why. I've I, I, I've worked around well, I worked around a lot of white folks, and as you said earlier, you know, like um, they would. I had to tell one guy because he was like, "Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I've got black friends." I said, "No, you don't. Right? You you know somebody that's married to a black lady that comes over to your house on holidays." Right. He said, "Well, what about you?" I said, "I'm not your friend. We work together." Right. And, what do you know and, about me? Right. 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 When you and, really and, and I'm like, bro, you've never been to my house and you're never going to come to my house. Right. And and oh, my God, you would think that that the Lord came down and struck his whole family down. He was heartbroken. Like, I, and it's that. I don't even know what the word for, but it's that expectation of me trumpeting his friendship. Right. When all we do is show up for eight hours together and we we right. cool, we talk about shit, we got some right. things in common, but right. I go home and I don't think about you. But, and, and he doesn't and know your he doesn't know your deepest thoughts and, exactly. and that's, what, that's what a friend is, you know. Exactly. Is somebody that like when you're in pain, you would go to them. You're yes. not gonna go to him and he's not gonna go to you. So yes. like you know, yeah. So a lot of white folks that even got in the movement had surface relationships that right. they looked at differently. Right. You know, so yeah, I, I I get what you're saying, man. Um, geez, uh, who did you is outside of your parents, your 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 mother specifically, but who was your role model? You know, um, when I went to college, I, I I went to school in New Orleans. I was at Tulane, and uh, I lived in New Orleans for for ten years, six years after I graduated, and um, most of my role models and my mentors were. Um, 
black folk that were affiliated with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, first off, but also the white folks that were connected to them through their sort of subsidiary organization called European Descent, D-I-S-S-E-N-T. Mm-hmm. Um, and those white folks who had come through the, the Institute and were connected to the Institute were people who um, really modeled a kind of white anti-racism that I could appreciate and respect for the first time, because, you know, it was very easy, I think, for white folks when they when they decide to challenge racism, you can either get wrapped up in that whole guilt phase of being white, which is not helpful. Like no black person has ever been liberated by white guilt, like white people feeling guilty and bad. is not going to liberate anyone, not going to help. But a lot of white liberal anti-racism looked like that. Well, European descent didn't look like that. They really mm-hmm. looked like people that wanted to be accountable for white supremacy, but also to take real action against white supremacy in the name of solidarity with black people and brown folk. And um, and so those were some of my early mentors and some of my early teachers and people that I respected um, and who were very patient with me because I, you know, I was a I was a I was a campus activist in college um, focused mostly on South African apartheid because it was the 80s and that was the big issue at that time. So I like a lot of people was doing anti-apartheid work, but specifically around South Africa. And here were these amazing anti-racism activists in New Orleans that were like, okay, that's cool. That's great. It's very valuable. Glad you're doing that. But in the meantime, here? we have apartheid like down the block, basically. And we really need you to be involved in that. And they were the folks that really opened my eyes to the connectivity between what I was talking about in a much safer context, i.e. racism 8,000 miles away versus racism eight blocks away right mm-hmm. or two blocks away or eight feet away you know because it was all around me so i would say that my my mentors and my teachers beyond my family were were really those folks i mean there were people in college that i met that were professors who were amazing too intellectually but from a from a day-to-day real deep understanding i would say it was the people's institute folks uh, the folks i worked with at agenda for children which was a nonprofit group that i did community organizing with um, worked in public housing in and around uh, public housing in New Orleans for 18 months. Um, the folks that that brought me into those communities, introduced me to the leaders in those communities, subordinated my ego to their experience. Um, mm-hmm. Those people that really were my were my were my mentors. Speaking of South Africa, uh, I've always felt that it was the wrong Mandela as hmm. president. Um, I have always been more of a vengeful type of person. You know, the older I get, the more practical I get in that lesson some. Um, but I thought that he was way too accommodating. Am I wrong? Well, I don't know that you're wrong. I'm not in a position. I'm never going to. I can't bring myself to judge a guy that was in prison for that long. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to defer uh, on that question and just say, look, you know, I have immense respect for Nelson Mandela for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. just like I have immense respect for Archbishop Tutu and, and, and for everyone that was involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, Stephen Biko and so many others who lost their lives and, and others who did not. Um, I think, I think that ultimately what I appreciate about Nelson Mandela and what I appreciate about Archbishop Tutu and others is that, it's pretty apparent to me that if we're going to create a just society, whether it's in South Africa or whether it's in the U S or whether it's in any, any country, um, there isn't any likelihood. And I've certainly seen no example historically Mm -hmm. where vengefulness and revenge has ever created a just society. That doesn't mean that, that equanimity and decency does, but I've never seen revenge and vengefulness create a just society. Ultimately, we just recreate systems of oppression in different directions, and they ultimately don't work for anyone. So although I definitely had problems early on, I remember being very skeptical, for instance, Mm -hmm. about the whole concept of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa. I just remember being very skeptical, even cynical, because I remember thinking like, well, I get the truth piece. That'd be good. But the reconciliation piece sort of you know, maybe grind my teeth a little bit because I was like, first off, how do you reconcile uh, some of the shit y'all did? Right. Yeah. Like, like, how do you reconcile? Because reconciling things means that you make it okay, Right. Like that's the definition of reconcile. 
is to make something okay, basically. And I don't really want to make injustice okay. Plus, you can't reconcile stuff that was never consiled. Like, how do I reconcile something that was never consiled in the first place? So I never liked the terminology, but the concept of let's get everything out there and then let's figure out systemically how we hold people responsible and change society. I respected that concept. I just didn't like the language. So like in this country, I think it would be very valuable, for instance, mm-hmm. for every community to have a, whether we call it truth and reckons, I'd rather call it truth and justice, but whatever, like whatever we call it, truth and justice commission, where we actually talk about the history of, hey, what happened here? Like not just ancient history, but like 20 years ago, five years ago, yet last week, like what what has been the racialized history of this space that we live on? Like there's real value in that. But Mm -hmm. then we have to get to the point where we say beyond that. okay, once we figure out what the answer to that is, how do we have accountability? And I don't mean individual accountability where it's like, oh, that person is shamed and sent away from the community or locked up for 30 years. I'm talking about systemic repair. How do we actually say like, okay, so I live in Nashville, the city of Nashville. This is what Nashville did to black folk. This is what Nashville did to indigenous people. This is what Nashville now owes and Nashville institutions owe to these people that they have screwed over repeatedly. And so if we can do some truth and justice Mm -hmm. all about that and South Africa did create that model, even if they labeled it in a way that maybe I wouldn't have. Well, they they also gave people like just a complete pass on shit that there should have been something, you know, there, like if, if Nelson Mandela had to do decades in prison, some of the shit y'all was doing yet deserves some prison time. But let me ask you this. I definitely agree with that. I, def- I definitely agree with you. <laughs> um, next, next election, Tim Wise is elected president. What, what's the top three things, the top three laws you introduce? Man. That's that's tough. Um, I've never given it a lot of thought because I know the reality of our situation is such that I would never be elected anything, let alone president. But I'll give it a shot. So I think I think the most important thing. <laughs> I disagree with you, though. But go ahead. Well, I appreciate your your support. Uh, but I, I would say there are a couple of things. Um, and this is not in any particular order of importance, but I'm going to say this this way because I think so much of what keeps white supremacy in place and inequality in place is this ideology of rugged individualism and meritocracy, this idea that the best always rise to the top. Like as long as you believe that, it's very hard for you to ever think about equalizing resources because you just assume the people on the bottom are there because they're inferior and the people up here, they're just superior. So one of the things that I that I talk about this in my book, Under the Affluence, is that I think, you know, if I had the power to make it so, I would say that there are certain things that ought to be guaranteed as a matter of universal human right to Mm -hmm. all people, not based on their ability to pay, not based on their job, not based on their status, but healthcare, housing, and food. Those are basic necessities. We start talking about other stuff, vacations, big screen TVs, cars, that's luxuries. We're not talking about that. We're talking about basic necessities that everybody needs just to be able to, like, organize their life. Right. And so food, shelter and medicine. Uh, I would want those three things to be guaranteed as a matter of course for everybody as a matter of universal human right. Beyond that, there might be some inequality that creeps in, but those basic things are going to be taken care of. So everybody knows that their needs are met. The second thing is that I would. I would want some form of systemic reparation for the history of white supremacy and particularly vis-a-vis black people mm-hmm. in this country. Now, what that means, we're going to have to have a long conversation about what that looks like. But I believe in systemic repair, which is to say long term investment at the community level controlled by the community. It's not about writing individual checks to individual people so much as it is saying, hey, this community needs to have control of these resources, because if the resources hadn't been stolen, those resources would have been in the hands of, let's say, black people. Right. So black folks would have been a, in a position to decide where are we going to invest our money? Where are we going to put our money? So we need to have both reparation on a on a on a material level, mm-hmm. but also on a power redistribution level, which is to say that we need certain things to be out. of. I don't want the I don't want the the Congress 
or the mayor of a particular town necessarily have control over where the reparation money is spent or how it's spent. I want the community. I want I want there to be some democratically elected small D democratically elected institution that would control public private partnership, whatever we want to call it, that would that would be created from within the community of, of, of marginalized folks who would control the distribution of those resources and figure out what needs to happen with those. Um, so that would be the second thing. And then the third thing, um, I just think we need uh, to have a, a, a public safety system that is rooted in the idea of, of functional communities rather than punishment. That is to say that I think we need to have whatever, whatever kind of, some people want to call it law enforcement, I would call it public safety, whatever. We need to have a public safety reality that actually perpetuates public safety which is usually not going to mean enforcement on the back end. I'm not saying there won't be a role for enforcement on the back end when things go haywire because folks go sideways sometimes. And we understand that. But the reality is that the vast majority of the stuff that we that we assign to the criminal justice system um, to take care of the so-called criminal justice system is stuff that could be taken care of preemptively by other systems, whether that's education, whether that's counseling, whether that's healthcare, whether that's jobs. Uh, and leaving 10, 15, 20% on the back end rather than what we do now, which is we neglect the front end and we end up with everything on the back end. So we need to reorient our public safety apparatus. We need to think seriously about what systemic reparation for the history of white supremacy and anti-blackness looks like. And we need to think about basic necessities like food, shelter, and medicine as being things that we don't just leave up to the free market, so to speak, but we say, you know what? everybody's entitled to these things and we're going to make sure that those things exist for everyone without regard to race, gender, sexuality, class, whatever it is. Okay. So it's pretty obvious you, you are not a Trump fan by any stretch of the imagination. And I don't know too many people that are, to be quite honest, but I think Biden gets a pass. Sure. What, What are your criticisms of Biden? Well, my criticisms of Biden, look, as somebody who's much to his left politically, like all the stuff I just mentioned, for instance, he, he ain't not, trying to do he's not going to do any of that. Right. No. Um, and I'm very aware of that. And to me, that is a, a, a criticism of him and the Democratic Party. Generally, they're not going to do any of that. Um, I'm also very realistic about the way that change happens in this country and the way that my views are not anywhere near the majority view. I'm, 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 I would love to tell you that I think every, you know, there are people on the left who will try to convince you that, Oh, the country's really with us. They're actually a very progressive country. I don't believe that. Like I like white, I've been white for 55 years, man. I'm gonna tell you right now, white folks are not progressive. Like they're just not like the vast white people enjoy their whiteness. Oh, very much so. So the idea that white, like I know Michael Moore and some of these documentary people and some of these nice white liberal folks will tell you things like white folks are really down for progressive agendas. But that's only in those. If you look at actually where that data is coming from, it's coming from states that are overwhelmingly white. Right. So like if white folks are really down for for like um, universal health care, like, yeah, they are in Vermont. You know, like, like, yeah, like white folks in Vermont love universal health care because you know what? Everybody getting it looks like them. Yeah. Right. And so so the problem is when when and you look at white folks in Minnesota, you look at white folks in various places that have this like social democracy vibe. Yeah. But it's because they they know that the beneficiaries of all that of all that stuff are going to be people that look a lot like them when you get into the most integrated states and the most multiracial states, that's when white folks start taking a check, you know, checking out on that. So my concern is realizing that reality while still fighting for a different reality. And I'm not expecting Joe Biden to be anything. Look, I expect whoever the head of the empire is, look, we're an empire. I don't care whether it's Bill Clinton. I don't care whether it's Barack Obama. I don't care whether it's Joe Biden. I don't care whether whoever it's going to be. Like, if you're the head of the empire, I sort of expect you to act like the head of the empire. I don't expect you to be overwhelmingly progressive. I'm not really counting on you, and I'm never going to rely on you to be the source of liberation for anybody because you don't become the president of the United States of America being a source for liberation. That's just not real. Like, I know my history enough to know that that's not who you're going to be because if you were that person, you would never get elected. You would be killed 
We've already talked about that. You know, like 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 you would just be killed. So, you know, if you're really if you're really into liberation and equity and justice, you're not going to become the president. But I will. So I will cut you enough slack to realize what your limitations are. At the same time, though, I will critique you and say, listen, we need to have a president who is aspirational, not just um, descriptive. That is to say, somebody mm-hmm. talks about what they aspire the country to be rather than just what the country is. It's not enough to tell me that this is who we are now and we're going to get better. Like you need to actually say, what does that better look like? And so my critique of Joe Biden, just like the critique of the party in general, is that y'all need to have a vision of where you want to go because the right has that vision and it's a terrifying vision. Like they're very clear on it. They want a white America. They want a Christian America. They want a straight America. They want a, a whatever. They want like they want their hegemonic traditionalist interpretation of America to run everything. And and they're very open about it. And I think for those people who are on the quote unquote left or progressive side of things, like we just sort of we just sort of respond to their stuff. Right. Rather mm-hmm. than actually saying like, no, the kind of country we want, the kind of culture we want is looks like this. Like, what would it look like to to actually be freed from the concern over things like your health and whether or not you have enough food and whether or not you got a place to live? Like, what would that look like? Because to me, what that looks like, even though I know we're a long way from that. But what that looks like to me is that that parent who, you know, is working a job they hate just to put food on the table, but they've got a really good idea for a business they'd like to start or a nonprofit organization they'd like to start, or they want to go back to school and get some additional training, but they, they're, they're, they're afraid to do any of that because they can't, they can't miss work for three days while they pursue their dream because they won't be able to pay their kids healthcare. You know, like that's, that's where we're at now. What we need is a president who actually can speak to that piece and actually Mm -hmm. say like, if we went in this direction, we could have so much more than what we have right now. Are you are you ever concerned for your safety at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I literally uh, got a call two days ago from uh, the FBI, actually, um, because of a of an active threat against me and my family. So this happens. It's a it's a it's a normal, natural, not normal, but it's a it's a predictable thing that I deal with. Um, I've had FBI agents literally come to my door twice in the last 18 months. And then this one call. So three contacts in the last 18 months about active threats. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's a it's a real it's a real concern. Our our address was leaked online five years ago. And, um, you know, we deal with hate calls and I get death threats every week. Um, So I I certainly worry about I worry about it more for my family than for me. I knew when I took this on, you know, the first time I got a death threat, I was 18 and I was in college. And it was because of something I wrote in a student newspaper and I got a death threat called into my dorm room. So, I mean, I've been I've been sort of dealing with that for, Mm -hmm. you know, 35 years. And there comes a point where when you deal with that for 35 years, you just learn to just roll with it. What I what I hate is that, you know, my family has to deal with it. My kids have to deal with it. Um, my wife has to deal with it, you know, but, but yeah. How I mean, does she but, deal with it? Like, like the first time that there was something active, an active threat, um, yeah. that you and your wife were together. Yeah. How does she deal with that? I mean, she freaked out as you can imagine. Like, I mean, she <laughs> I'm, knew, I'm not laughing at her. She knew what she was getting into when she married me. But once you have, you know, I think the first time, well, the first time that we actually ever got any kind of a call at our house, our kids were really, really young and it was like a one-off thing. And I think, I don't know that she took it all that seriously, but, but once we moved into another house and then it got ramped up a little bit and I start, we had Nazis actually come to our neighborhood and pass out death threats against me in our, like to all of our neighbors and all kinds of stuff. And that was, you know, our kids were, you know, tweens, they were early teens, uh, and that was scary. And then we moved and our, we kept our address hidden for several years until it was somehow discovered. And, and then my, my wife was, you know, pretty freaked out. My, my oldest daughter had a much more sanguine view of it. Um, mm-hmm. 
I think to her, it was like, oh, well, gosh, I guess I have a good uh, college essay to write now because she was applying to college around that time. So she was like, well, I guess I can explain that I've been threatened by Nazis and that'll probably get me into whatever school I want to go to. So, you know, good for her. She was thinking she was thinking ahead, you know, but but yeah, no, it's heavy. It's heavy. And and I definitely, um, you know, I, I, I carry the weight of that everywhere because it it was I realized that my life and what I do brought that danger into the lives of other people who didn't necessarily ask for that, you know, mm hmm. And I, I imagine over the last few years, it's definitely gotten worse. Yeah. Yeah, it's gotten much worse. I mean, I this kind of stuff happened prior to Trump. But, um, you know, after 2018 in particular is when it really ramped up um, about halfway through his term was when we got doxxed. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was just all bets were off. And then Tucker Carlson, you know, attacked me on air one night and that was like all bets were off then because when tucker attacks you on air then you're going to get that crazy phone calls for weeks we got crazy phone calls my wife actually finally put an end to it because she just my wife is sort of a badass and she doesn't really take shit from anybody i don't either but she just finally picked up the phone she's like you know i can't even say what she said to this guy <laughs> on the phone but it was it was it was the work of art and he never called back again i'll just tell you that much so you definitely don't want to you don't want to mess with my wife about this stuff. You'd be far better served to mess with me because I might just ignore your call. She'll pick it up and just scream at you. So, you know, not taking bullshit. Sure. What are your thoughts on immigration? Um, well, I mean, look, on a on a purely practical level, if America does not allow pretty liberal immigration, the economy of the country is not going to survive for more than about 15 years, because the truth is, you just look at the age of white folks and black folks even now, but but especially white folks, the median age for white people in America is 45. So half of all white folks are older than 45, half are younger. The most common age for white people in America is like 53, I think, right now. Um which means that from a work perspective and a, and a fertility perspective, white America definitely on the decline, not enough white folks to keep stuff going. Now, black folks, 12 and a half percent of the population, that is not budged, by the way, in 15 years. Um, not going to. Do, do you do you believe that? I, I know it for a fact. Yes. Twelve and a half percent of the population is black. So, well, uh, let me say this between 12 and a half and 13.2, because it depends if you count anyone that could be considered black, including more recent African immigrants, it might go up to 13, but there's roughly 40, the maximum number of quote unquote black people is 40 million people. And that pales. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a conspiracy theory. I, I think that some of those numbers are suppressed, but. Um... I mean, they're, they're just, but there's no evidence that they are. I mean, there's just no evidence that there's millions of black people that are not being counted. Okay. Because even even black folks who go out and do this research themselves are coming up with roughly the same number. So so black folks are between 12.2 and 13.2 percent of the population. Let's say 12, 5, 12, 7, whatever it is, far less than the Latino population, um, obviously far less than the white population. So so and the median age for black folks in America is 36 for black women, 35 for black men. Um, which is at the upper end of the normal fertility range, right? So, yeah, mm -hmm. there are people in their mid to late 30s still having babies, but the fertility drops for sure. Right. Definitely for white folks by the mid 40s, not a lot of folks having babies. So the only thing that is keeping the workforce literally afloat in the next 20 years in this country, in all likelihood, is probably pretty liberal immigration because other because the average age for, for the median age for Latinos is 29 and 30 for uh, uh, 29 for women, 30 for men. For Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, about 30, 34, 35. So pretty much like black folks. So, you know, regardless of what I think about, I mean, the, the, the issue is if you're going to have a functional country economically, there mm -hmm. are not going to be enough people to fill the jobs, pay the social security and or produce the children that are going to be in the workforce in the next generation. So from a purely, purely materialistic productivity perspective, immigration becomes an important aspect of American economic growth. Um, having said that, it is critically important that 
as we rely on immigrant labor, just like other countries that have tried to rely on immigrant labor, we cannot create a multi-tiered society where either those immigrants um, have more opportunity than other people or or have less legal protection than other people. I don't want immigrants to, it's not gonna be helpful to have immigrants working but not give them civil rights protections because that's gonna actually create an incentive for employers to hire them over yeah. native born people. If you actually say to an immigrant, oh, you're not gonna be covered by minimum wage and you're not gonna have healthcare because you're an immigrant, then all that does is tell the employer, let me hire that cheap labor from Honduras or from Sri Lanka or from wherever it is. We wanna make sure that those immigrants are covered the same way everybody else is so that at the end of the day, whoever gets that job is gonna be based on productivity, not based on cheap labor being exploited by, an, by a capitalist employer. And so my concern right now about immigration is you have employers who are choosing immigrant cheap labor, not because they have any love for immigrants. They, they don't love immigrants. They don't they don't love brown folk. That's not it. But because they think they can exploit them and take advantage of them. Right. Yeah. And so if we have if we have across the board labor protections, then I think that that will be less of an issue. And the actual hiring that takes place will be based on, oh, this person actually you know, was the best person for this particular job or whatever else might be the case. So they were the one that was available for this job. But my concern right now is if we talk about shutting down immigration, like somehow we can do without it, I, I just don't see an economic version of America that works with considerably restricted immigration. Because those those folks are not going to just go out and start hiring black people. They're not just going to go out and start hiring working class white people. They're not going to do it. Those jobs just won't even be there. That's the and, problem. And I, I'm, I'm torn. I'll tell you why. Um, well, half of me, a few weeks ago, I saw, uh, I'm pretty sure he was a Mexican guy. Um, they were fixing the roof across the street from me. And this guy falls the fuck off, off the roof. Mm. And I run over there. I'm like, baby, call a, call a, uh, ambulance, blase splee. And dude looks fucked up. Yeah. And then he's like, no, he, he didn't speak any English, but I could tell he was telling whoever was translating for him. Don't call the ambulance. And this dude gets up and goes back to work. Yeah. Like I feel horrible that any person is in yeah. a position where you yeah. fall off a damn roof and you have to get up and go back to work because you're right. scared. Messed up, right, right. But at the same time, I don't want my ancestors or my lineage, more more specifically, to be usurped by people that did not have, did not struggle to build this country like we did. So it's a, it's a, you know, it, it's it's a difficult just thought process, I guess. And I, I can't be the only brother that's thinking that way. No, I understand what you're saying, but I think that I think the thing that's important to remember is that two things can be true at once, which is that immigrants can come and they can be encouraged to and taught to respect that struggle that they now benefit from. And they should be taught that struggle. They, they should learn that history that they now benefit from. And we can teach that and we can expect that to be taught. And it can also be true that those individuals may be from a practical necessity perspective important to the benefit of all of us. Cause I will tell you uh, they're, they're, they're from just from an aging perspective, just from a median age perspective, if white folks median is 45, 46 and black folks median is 35, 36, the country cannot survive unless everybody that's white and black starts going Duggar family and having 15 kids, which who the hell wants to do that? Like nobody really wants to do that. So, so the truth is we have to create, we're going to have to create a society that does two things at once. One is that provides opportunity for all who want to come and contribute to the society. And two, expects anyone who comes to fundamentally learn the struggles that they are joining and being a part of. And that's true, whether you are brown or whether you're white coming from Central Europe. I want, I want people coming from Bosnia in the 90s to know that history. I want people coming from from if you have somebody coming from Ukraine now to get away from the war, for example, with Russia, I would hope that that Ukrainian uh, 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 refugee or immigrant would learn that history because they're benefiting from that, too. Right. Like like I think all of us need to learn from that. But we also need to recognize that um, that the country is an ideational nation. And, and this country has always been an idea more than blood and soil. The white supremacists want to make it blood and soil. So to them, it, it, it's a white country because they think white people created it. Now, you and I both know that the hardest work was being done by people that weren't white. 
But but whenever we get into an idea of like who built the country, what we forget is that the country is a set of principles and ideas that a lot of people have contributed to, including a lot of non-white people, obviously, and it is a constant work in progress. I want that work in progress to be inflected by non-European peoples, um, including Latinos and Asians and indigenous people and whoever from around the world. But it is critical, 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 critical that whoever comes to this country understands in ways that some clearly don't want them to understand the history of anti-blackness and the, and the centrality of black people to the narrative of America. I want to make sure everybody learns that because otherwise, yeah, then we have a problem where people come in and it's not just usurping jobs potentially it's, but it's usurping a spot in the, in the narrative, in the crowd, right? Like there's a lot of room in this country for a lot of people, as long as we have the right mentality. As long as we have the right sensibility, it, it, it's, it's the way we view the world, not that we're all in it. We're all here. We can be yeah. here. There's room for folks. But the question is, do we understand what we're looking at? And I would want to make sure that those people who come here, whether it's from Europe, whether it's from Asia, whether it's from Africa, whether it's from Central America, South America, that they understand what it is they're seeing and why it looks the way that it looks. And the, the problem with that, and, and, and I'm gonna let you go after this, but the, I, the problem with that is that the propaganda for eons here has been disseminated to the world, the pecking order here, of course, and and where black folks are, how to how to treat black folks, how to view black folks, where white folks are, and how to view them, so that when they come here, even if even if they're they're altruistic, subconsciously they have been conditioned to view things the same way that most people in this country view things. Oh, for sure. So it's kind of, it'd be kind of difficult to, to, cause you got, you don't just teach them. You have to, you have to, uh, unteach them the shit that they, they saw on TV for, for years and the two channels they had that were, uh, uh showing American shows and, and, and then reteach them again when they get here. So it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing about it that's easy. I mean, cause, cause we, we, we export the propaganda globally. Yeah. Yes. And so folks, folks have anti-blackness before they even get here. Right. Like they like they they literally can bring that with them. They don't even have to learn it here. They can learn that wherever they are from. Absolutely. Um, But 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 the question ultimately becomes like if you have have a country of 330 million people and 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 you think there's a way to restrict immigration that won't that will somehow protect black people. I think that's entirely unlikely, like if because any anti-immigration thing is going to be done in the name of whiteness. Let's be very clear. That's going to be done in the name of protecting white people from brown people. So if we have a policy that's based on protecting white people from brown people, that's not going to help black people. That's going to ultimately help white people. And 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 black folks are not going to be the beneficiaries of that. So the only possibility, it seems to me, strategically, mm-hmm. for, for black liberation is solidarity politics that includes however many Latinos can be brought into that, however many Asians can be, and however many white allies can be, because I don't think that 12 and a half, 13 percent of the population can create liberation on one's own in this country with the power that is that is disproportionately held by white folks. So it's going to require some coalition politics, and that's going to be coalitions that are uneasy, as all coalitions are. But it's going to be messy. It's going to be ugly. And those who are coming into the coalition who are brown, who are who are from around the world and coming to the country, have an obligation, have an absolute obligation to connect themselves to the black liberation struggle and to follow the lead of the black liberation struggle. Because if they are going to be free, it's only going to be because black folks, when black folks get free, everybody gets free. And that's basically the way it works. And until black folks are free, nobody's really free. Agreed. So that's what they need to learn from that. And that's why it's important to build that kind of solidarity. But I agree with you. It's very difficult, very difficult. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, they, how, do, how do they go about that? Um, your most recent book, they want to buy one of your books. How do they go about doing that? My most recent book is Dispatches from the Race War. You can find that at any bookstore. You can find that on Amazon. You can go to citylights.com, which is City Lights is my is my publisher. Um, so you can also find all my books or most of my books are on that website because most of my books are with City Lights. Um, my Twitter is uh, at Tim Jacob Wise. Um, folks can find me there as long as I stick around on Twitter. I'm still debating whether to stick around. You know, I'm just about done with them at this point. But folks can still find me on there. I'm, I'm, I'm deceptive. Look, if Nazis can find me to call me on the phone, folks can find me online. So I'm sure, I'm sure folks will figure it out. I'm easy to find. Too easy to find. 
Um, I definitely want to thank you um, tremendously, man, for your time, your effort, and your energy. This was a, a, a very enlightening conversation. I appreciate it. I really thank do. You. I appreciate um, you, too. No doubt, man. You have a good one. If there's anything I can ever possibly do for you, not sure what, but if there is, let me know. All right. Take care. Appreciate take it. Take care. Have a good one. And that was Tim Wise. For those of you that don't know, um, come on, man. You already know, man. I, I really only rock with legends around here. This has been another episode of Intellectually Petty Radio uh, brought to you by M3S3 Clothing. And, you know, I always rock my, my skin is my sin. That's the root around here. Anyway, y'all have a good one. Oh, um, next week we got a twofer. Um, I got the legend Sebo coming on at 7 o'clock. And we got Brian McKnight. Junior coming on at five o'clock at um and that is next Thursday. Um salute to y'all. Y'all have a good one. Appreciate it. I'm out.